Well, good morning. Isn't it a great opportunity to worship our great king? Thankful that he came, and uh, he was born into this world, and he uh, came, and he grew up, and he lived a righteous life, and he died for us. And uh, are you looking forward to him coming again? The first time was good enough, but uh, the second time uh, will be uh, glorious and, and uh, even more victorious. Well, uh, we're going to continue our time of worship uh, we're in scripture reading, and we're going to turn our attention to the preaching of God's word, but I'd like to take some time here for the next few moments just to address the church as a pastor and just have a little bit of a family chat. You know, as, um, as change happens around us, well, there's a lot of change that can be really good, and there's a lot of change that can be bad, and we can have good, uh, good attitudes towards change, and we can have bad attitudes towards change. It just shakes life up sometimes, doesn't it? And uh, sometimes lots of change comes at us, and it's just overwhelming, and, and all of it can be good, but it's all happening at once, and then you throw in the mix of a variety of things, and it's, um, um, anyway, it make, just makes things difficult sometimes, and so uh, just like to take some time for us to just reflect together and talk about some of the changes that have been happening around us. I'm not trying to scare you about some big change coming, just, you know, sorry, I've seen some looks on faces. Um, you know, just, we have a lot of things that have been changing here at our church over the last few months as far as our building projects, the playground, and uh, just like to remind us of a few of the things that are, that are important and where our focus needs to be. And, um, and also I recognize that a lot of you have been worshiping with us for several months or even a few years, but you may not have been here when a lot, when a lot of the, the seeds of some of these projects started several years ago. And so uh, I'd like to take a few minutes um, to kind of share a little bit of the history of that. Uh, I think a lot of it started back in, in 2006 when we built this gymnasium. Uh, we built a multi-purpose area. Uh, there were plans that, that after this gymnasium was built that we were also going to continue building out to the north. And there was going to be a large 200 to 300 feet auditorium going out this direction where the, the playground now exists. And um, yeah, really big. Um, and uh, as, uh, as, speaking of, um, and so um, the idea was that we were going to go out this direction. And, and it was going to be a, a large project that was going to be costing somewhere in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably well over a million dollars. Uh, but it was a big project. And several years ago, the leadership of the church said, you know what? This just doesn't seem to where be where our congregation is at right now. A and we don't really believe that that's where the Lord is leading things right now for our congregation. And so, so they pulled back on that project. But, but we also recognized that once we finished this project and that this was paid off, uh, there were still funds that were left over in that building project um, fund. And so um, a few years ago, we came to the church and we did a survey. And we said, we, we have money that's set aside for this, but what are the priorities that we need to be focusing on? And we looked at several things. We've talked about some of the needs that we still have. You know, our kitchen uh, is, is somewhat small for the size of our congregation. We have our fellowship hall. There's sound issues in there. Uh, we talked about handicap accessibility a designated worship area similar to the one that was planned this direction but but do we still need to look at that and so we did a survey and and the overwhelming result of that was two two primary things that came to the surface that that the congregation said th these this is where we think we need to have the priority uh, of some of these changes and the first one uh, one, one of the first two was handicap accessibility restrooms uh, with all of our truth singer stuff that happens down here uh, they were always having to go upstairs anytime they needed the facilities, and uh, it just made it difficult having the restrooms that we had down here. And so uh, a few years ago, we did that project, and uh, we, we made those restrooms so they were definitely more accessible um, past the fellowship hall. Uh, but the second one was still that a, a warm, inviting atmosphere in which we would have a designated place of worship. Uh, worship happens all the time. It happens in our lives every day, and as we come together, this is an opportunity for us as a congregation to gather together as a body and, and worship together. And so that, that, um, uh, that atmosphere, that um, designated place for us to gather uh, was the other thing that was at the top of that list. And so we started making plans. Uh, we started setting things aside and putting teams together. And uh, th some things got postponed. And then when we started talking about it again, the pandemic happened. That kind of postponed things for just a few months or longer. Um, and then uh, cost of lumber went up, and so we decided to hold off. And so there's just a variety of things. But then in 2023, at the end of 2022, the elders and deacons said, you know, look, uh, and I'm sorry for the people that are online. I'm walking all over the place and probably going off screen. But um, the elders and deacons decided, you know, it, we need, we've been talking about this for long enough. I, it's time that we would, uh, we need to start this project. And so... 
So we started putting that team together. Uh, Brent Cuby came on the leadership team, and we asked Brent if he would head that up. We gave him a budget to work with. We gave him the parameters uh, of what we were looking for in that. And uh, he's done an excellent job in, in leading those teams. There's a lot of things happening behind the scenes a lot of people don't see in, in the planning. And so you know, there's color teams, people that are dec choosing colors. There's the design team. There's a team that's been put together that says, okay, now we have the design and, and what we're planning on doing. How do we actually do that? A and so some guys that know how to swing a hammer and, and what it takes and who to hire and, and whether we should or not. And so um, he's been working with each of those teams and just done a fantastic job. In, in administrating that and, and staying within the parameters that the elders and the deacons gave to him and, and to each of those teams. So I uh, really do appreciate that. But uh, three of the main things that we decided that we needed to focus on, and, and I'd like to share these with you because, because I think sometimes we get this idea that, you know, we just said, okay, let's just throw up some sheetrock, let's get some red paint and just, you know, hang a couple pictures. And, uh, or the things are just kind of haphazard and, and we just make some decisions really quickly. And and uh, as we've been talking about these things, there are three primary issues that the elders and the deacons said, these are some of the things that need to be addressed as we, as we do this building project that we're doing. Uh, one of the main ones was the acoustics. A as you know, we're, we're in a box in here. This is a, a rectangular room. I can hear my echo off the back wall still right now as I'm speaking to you today. And, and there's just there's some acoustical issues because of the nature of the, the, the area that we have set aside as our, our worship area. And so every aspect of this project, whether it was building the stage or the walls, the, the stuff on the back wall, uh, all the different aspects of this project, one of the main things that we've been shooting for is, is improving the sound in the room. There's a lot of people in our congregation that have come to us over the years and said, I can't hear the sermon. Sometimes the words are not clear enough, and, and the sound is bouncing around, and the echoes are too much for me. My ears are not what they used to be. And so we need to address some of those things as we, as we set aside an area where we come to worship together, and we need to make sure that we're addressing the needs of, of different age groups in our congregation, and people like me who are losing my hearing, and, and the tinnitus stuff, and you know, you just gotta, uh, those things affect us. And so there's the acoustical element. Uh, we also wanted to address the aesthetics uh, of things. You know, we're not building a cathedral that we're planning on standing for a thousand years. Uh, this project is not happening so that we can go, ooh, look what we've done. Uh, this, this, this can't be about us going, you know, we got some money, let's just spend it, and, and let's just make things really pretty. And, and if that's the purpose of what we're doing, then if that's the main end, then, then we're missing that as well. And so, but as we do that, and as we address these acoustical issues, and as we build this area, um, one of the things that we wanted to address is that, that it would look nice, and that we would plan uh, how, how that takes place. Um, and I'll address some more of that here in a, in a minute. But um, the third thing that we, we told Brent that we need to be focusing on is really the functionality of things. Uh, there's a lot of uh, things that happen on the stage, a lot of things that happen in our services. And so we need to focus on, on the function and, and whether this is functionable for a multi-purpose area. And so we do have storage rooms in the back now. And there's a, an area where the kids are able to do things when they're up here. We have a choir that's going to be here from uh, one of the local schools this spring, and, and we want an area that, that's going to accommodate those types of things. And so there's lots of different functional elements. There's things happening underneath the stage where we have electric work happening and, and sound equipment, and anyway, that goes on. And so anyway, those are the three, there's many other uh, issues that, that need to be addressed, but those are the three primary areas where we've been focusing our energy. And, um, and so we started that this last year. And uh, as you know, we have the first phase. Well, there's really four phases of this project. The first phase was the stage. Uh, the second phase was the, the walls. And don't they look good today? Um, I mean, they, the ladies chose the colors just so well, and it just looks beautiful. Uh, and so the walls now are, are, are pretty much complete. We're finishing the last of the trim. As you can see, some of that's starting to come up. Uh, the curtain that's going to go in the back has arrived. And again, the curtain that's going to hang back here. I, if I step back here just a few minutes, and I think Andrew can probably attest to this, I step back five minutes and the sounds just change. Not for you probably, but for me, I'm hearing myself bouncing off of these walls and I'm, I'm speaking to myself in three places. And so if you're on the praise team, there's a lot of stuff happening up here. And if you're on the sound team, uh, every time we change an element in here, it, it changes the dynamics of that. And so they're, they're working with the, um, all the things that are happening in this room. And, uh, and so I appreciate your patience with them as well. But um, anyway, the, there's going to be a curtain in the back, and it's not just so it looks pretty. It's not just to cover up the carpet and this and that. And 
Uh, the, the idea is, is also it's going to have some acoustical qualities that will help with a lot of those sound issues on that back wall and the sides. Then also it'll be over here in these doorways. And uh, that should go up in early January probably uh, or sometime in January. And then in the spring, uh, we'll have changed some of the lighting as well. And that will help uh, be able to see the screen better um, as well as maybe even reading our Bibles up uh, in, in the audience. And, um, and so... Uh, not as much of the fluorescent lighting. And so those will be the last two phases of that project that we'll be addressing. And again, a lot of these things have the functional elements of it, but there's also those acoustical and, and, and those visual qualities as well. Now, along with all that, I, I think it's important that, that we remember why we do what we do a and that we stay on focus, right? If, if, this is, if we're doing this because this is what we worship, then we've missed the boat. I mean, that's... Uh, if, if we're doing this so we can say, look what we've done, uh, then, then our focus is off. And, and, and that's never been what this is about. Um, all of these things should be done for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one that we worship. And, and we need to remember that any building project we do, whether it's a playground or whether it's acoustical tiles or even something elsewhere in the church or outside the church, anything that we do, if that becomes the object of our worship or, if, or even if we decide and somehow think that that those things define our worship that then that our focus is in the wrong place and so we need to remember that that it's jesus christ that we worship and, and these things are intended to uh, direct that attention to the one that we do worship whether it's helping people with acoustical issues whether it's just helping the sound so that there aren't distractions like that the visual things all all these different aspects should be drawing our attention to jesus christ it's also important that we need to remember that, that the reason we're doing this is not because we need a place to worship God, right? Can we worship God with a, with a garage door behind us? Absolutely. Can we worship God out in the countryside? We don't need a building. Now, it's nice, and it's nice that we have an area that we, we gather together, and whether you're a regular attender or a first-time visitor, uh, it, we, these things are good, but... Um, it's important that we remember that throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, the church has worshipped in all kinds of different locations. And uh, while a designated worship place is, is something that, that churches have been building throughout the centuries, uh, a lot of churches, during, especially during times of persecution, where did they go? They went underground. They went into the catacombs at times. And they worshipped Jesus Christ as they had a casket and a tomb sitting next to them, and they sang hymns down in an gra underground graveyard. A and our Lord was pleased with that worship and delighted with that worship because our God is so great that, that he doesn't require a building to be worshipped in. And so we can't forget those things. But as part of our worship, it's also important that, that we remember that worshipping him means that we are people that are thankful. We, we have so many things to be thankful for in this life. Uh, not only life itself, but the eternal life that he's given to us. He's given to us his son who died on the cross, who came as a babe, who, who grew into a, a man and lived a righteous life, and, and, and then he was crucified for us, and he took our sin upon himself. And, and for that alone, we have reason to give our God thanks. Um, and so there's so many things in this life that we should be thankful for. But even as we do this project, I think it's important that we remember to give God thanks for how he's, he's provided for us. I'm thankful for you as a congregation and, and your generosity over the years for the way that you have have uh, been involved in this church, not only in your financial giving, but also just the giving of your time, the using of, of your gifts that God's given to you. Uh, and uh, I'm just thankful for this congregation and, and the way that you are letting God work in your life. I am thankful for also the generosity of many people that are outside of our church. And a couple things that are, that are part of that, as you're aware, we have these acoustical sound tiles that are up on the back, the back wall, and they went up a couple weeks ago. Um, outside of the screws that bolted them to the wall and some of the paint to make them look a little bit nicer, uh, we didn't spend a dime on that. Uh, there was a church in Quad Cities that said, we have these sitting in a warehouse, and we want you to use them. And that stack of acoustical panels all by themselves cost in, in the neighborhood of thousands of dollars. Uh, the, the playground that's going on outside, we were thinking about maybe doing some upgrades, we were talking about it, uh, something became available, and we started a conversation with a Christian school over in Illinois, and eventually they said, you know what? We want to give this to you. We, we want to give this playground to you. If, if you take it, there's some issues that you need to probably fix and weld, and some of you guys have been doing a m magnificent job putting that together. But uh, that, that was a gift that was given to our church from Unity Christian School. And uh, um, 
I think I think somebody priced that. If we bought just that one set that's standing right now that, that we've started seeing, not to mention the other three smaller sets that will be put up in the spring, if we bought that one brand new, it would have been well over $50,000 by itself. And that was just given to the church. And so all that to say, over this last several years, we've, we've gone from talking about building a, um, a, an auditorium that was going to be in hundreds of thousands of dollars, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars, to something that, that was definitely more uh, in, in, the, uh, in the frame of, of what we felt was appropriate for the size of our congregation and where, for where things are at here. And, and so um, throughout that whole process, we haven't borrowed a dime for this, for this project. Uh, and we should be thankful for how God has, has provided in so many different ways. Um, but then also, I, I think the last aspect of our worship in this is it's important that we're also praying for one another. I'm thankful for just the attitudes that I've seen. Um, um, uh, talk to me and I had some questions about a variety of things. Uh, but, but I haven't had any sense of complaining. There's never been this bitterness uh, in the congregation. I'm just thankful for the way that you've interacted with one another and, and the way you've been praying for your leaders throughout this process. And I just want to encourage us that as we, as we finish this project over the next few months, that we would finish it well, that uh, we would do it in a way that we're giving thanks to our God, the, the, we would be praying for the leadership that they would continue to be able to, to do that in a fashion which they're being responsible with the resources that God's given to us. Um, but as we finish the, the curtain and the, the lighting, um, just that God would give us wisdom and discernment as we, as we do those things and put that together and praying for those teams that are, that are planning and organizing that. And so um, I just felt compelled that, you know, need to just talk to us as a congregation and remind us why we do what we do that this can't become the object of our worship. It, it needs to be Jesus, and, and we need to continue to worship our Lord, uh, particularly in uh, hearts that are filled with thanksgiving and hearts that we are praying for one another. And so um, if you just take a minute with me, let's just give our God thanks, and, uh, and let's pray for that, and then we'll have a scripture reading as well. Father, we thank you for, for um, the way you are working in this congregation. We thank you for the way you've provided for us. Uh, we do thank you that we have a place that we can gather together, that we can take shelter from the elements outside. We thank you that we're able to gather in a place where we're not being persecuted by, by the local officials and they're not chasing us down and we're not hiding underground. We thank you that, that we have this opportunity, uh, not to mention all of those things, but that you've given us the opportunity to be a part of the church and that we can gather together with other believers and worship you and that we get to be a part of this body that is the body of Christ that we can use our gifts and serve one another and minister to one another and, and, and to be a light in our community. You are a good God, and, and we are grateful that, that you've called us to be a part of this grand and amazing, uh, glorious plan that, that you have given and that you have put together. Father, I do pray that as we continue with this building project and, and move into 2024, that you would give discernment and wisdom to the elders, to the deacons of our church, as we finish this building project, I pray that it would be done in a way that would glorify your son. I, I pray that all these things, that they wouldn't be done just to look nice or to, to build a name for ourselves in any way, but that all of it would be done to glorify the name of Jesus Christ, and that all of it would be done in a way that would direct attention to him throughout our services that we meet together. We thank you. We give you praise. stand please this morning the scripture reading is from Isaiah chapter 40 comfort comfort my people says your God speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Please be seated. Turn our attention to God's word, continue in our worship. 
I apologize. I went off a little, went off script a little bit there. I just looked at my clock and I went over what I planned on. So thanks for your patience with me, as I babbled on a little bit. Um, we're gonna turn to First Peter chapter three today. And as the children go out with the ladies, just it's okay with mom and dad, kids. You can guys can go with them. Uh, well, let's go to, to prayer before we turn to the Lord of the Word. Father, as we come to your word today, we, we, we come to you. We thank you again for your grace in our lives. We thank you for the scripture, for how it teaches us, how it, how it changes us. We thank you that you have given us this uh, as an act of your grace. And, and Father, we, we pray that you would give us attentive ears today. Help us to listen to what we read here. I, I pray that you would give us minds that would understand these things. And, and I pray that, that as we process what your word says and teaches us, Lord, I pray that you would give us soft hearts, that we would be tender um, to your spirit, that we would not suppress them in any way, that we would not grieve them in any way, that you would teach us to obey you. Help us to apply these things to your glory. Amen. Thank you, Lord. I appreciate that. This morning we come to a text of scripture that is considered to be repugnant by the society that we live in. We, we live in a culture that holds to independence and freedom. I mean, it's one of our core values, isn't it? Uh, we love our freedom. We're Americans. Now that's just part of being an American. We're, we're free. In fact, our nation was forged in independence. Uh, every, every July 4th, we celebrate a day in which our forefathers cast off the chains of tyranny and then they fought for their freedom. And 250 years later, this spirit of liberty uh, has gone beyond that idea of freedom to, to be entrenched in th just the very way that we think about things. It's gone beyond the, freedom, uh, the, the freedoms that we've talked about for, for hundreds of years to, to a worldview that revolves even more than that around the self. So much so that in our century... We, I believe we've shifted away from this idea uh, that, I, that I as an individual have an obligation to society and that being free means that I'm part of a big whole, I'm part of a society in which I relate to other people. A and the mantra of our day has become, you can't tell me what to do. It's part of our culture. And heaven forbid that we would still use words like submission, obedience, humility, service, this is why we come to a passage like 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3, and, and I think oftentimes rather than ask ourselves how we might obey the Lord's instruction, our, our impulse is to start building a perimeter. I, I know I'm guilty of it. I, I look at it and go, well, Lord, do you really mean this? I, you know, submit to uh, my master or my boss or my manager. Well, Lord, you, you know what kind of guy this is, right? And, and we start building these parameters around what we think obedience looks like. And it is important that we would consider those things. It's important that we understand what a passage is saying and what it's not saying because we don't want to take it out of context. But in our culture, we, we see a word like submission and I think our go-to is, uh, Lord, do you really mean? And we immediately start looking for loopholes. Submission is not something that you're going to find on the New York Times word of the day list, is it? And in part, that's why many in today's culture read chapter 3, verse 1, and they start crying out accusations against, accusations against the, the patriarchy of the church. You see, in chapter 2, Peter called for Christians to be subject to every human institution and for slaves to be subject to their masters. But in chapter 3, Peter turns his attention to the home, and this is how he begins. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they receive your respectful and pure conduct. Not a popular passage, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'd like to propose a crazy idea to you. I believe that passages like this one revolutionized the way culture viewed and treated women. Instead of this being an anti-woman, chauvinist passage, as so many people claim it is, that it's just another example of how the church is suppressing women, 
I would like to propose something very drastically and revolutionarily different from that idea. I believe and propose that 1 Peter chapter 3 elevates women to a standing of respect, beauty, and value that is often overlooked. And we'll take a look at how it does that. You see, today's audiences tend to compare this passage to the values of our culture and and the way that we phrase things in our culture. And we see how things are phrased in the Bible and our minds automatically go, ah, that's so different from the way we we talk about it here. And so we're going to look at the context. I I think it's very important that we look at the culture of the day. And and because we oftentimes jump to conclusions because of how our values contradict, our values in our culture contradict a passage and, and the scripture's values, we oftentimes forget to compare this passage to the context and the culture that it was written in. More seriously, oftentimes people forget to give consideration to the God who made men and women, who made us unique and different, who created us how he intended us to be, to experience great joy in life, and who established order in society and order in the home. And so let's just take a, a moment to understand the context. We're going to do this in three ways. First, you need to understand a little bit about the Greco-Roman household codes, which these passages are similar to. That sounds really exciting, doesn't it? You need to understand, number two, how women were viewed in those codes. And and number three, you need to understand how Peter uses these codes in the wider context of what he's addressing in 1 Peter. You see, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5, and a lot of other passages like that, Uh, It's not the first time that these rules were written for how people should behave in the home. Uh, We have a lot of examples from Greek and Roman culture. There were philosophers, there were politicians, there were even religious uh, groups that would give their own version of what these household codes looked like. And and there were a lot of them. Uh, It typically included a section about slaves and how the slave was to react to their master within the context of their home. It included a section on how children were to behave and the rights of the father. Um, And it included a section about the proper place of the wife. And the main thing that you need to understand, uh, we can go into incredible detail. I was surprised by how many papers I saw written on this subject this week. Um, We won't go through all those, and I won't bore you with all those details. But the main thing that you need to understand uh, is that these household codes, as they were called, that, that existed in the first century were oftentimes and usually very harsh. And, and they gave the father and the husband of the house the absolute rule, right to rule as a tyrant. That was his right in Greek and Roman culture. He had the right to, to leave an infant exposed to the elements. If a child was born and he saw it and, and something was wrong with it, it was his decision and his right with no ramifications and no penalty to take that child, to take it outside, and to leave it out in the sun where it would die a couple days later. No big deal in Roman culture. That's just the way things were. Now, it wasn't something that happened all the time. It happened enough that, that, that the church started going and finding those children and adopting those children for the first time in, in, in Roman history. Uh, people did something about it, and the church changed that. And so it happened enough that the church went out and, and rescued those children. But it could, be, it could have been something just as simple as the child was a girl and he wanted a boy. And so he'd leave the child outside no matter what the mother thought. It was his right. Wives were were property, and they were seen as part of the structure within the home that the husband governed. And these rules, mainly, oftentimes you read them, and they were written as if they they were government documents. And he was the king, or he was the governor of the home, and everything that happened within it fell within that government structure. And so there was a a very, there was really a cold texture to these, these household codes. So Peter and Paul, in their version of the household code, um, they've changed all that. There, there, is, there is still a focus on God's created order. There, there's still a focus that recognizes there's a fundamental difference between men and women, and, and that God has created an order in humankind for how things are to work in the home. But in the New Testament, we find that within that order, we find a call for submission within a context where the Christian husband is commanded to a, to a loving relationship. 
He doesn't leave the home as a tyrant, but he leaves out of respect and consideration. If you look at the context of Ephesians, there's, there's a context of mutual submission in which the husband is submitting to the wife and the wife is submitting to the husband. And in their unique roles, they submit to one another and seek what is absolutely best for the other. A- and they purposefully put themselves under the other to accomplish what God has purposed. Now, and I do want you to understand there were, there were freedoms that women did enjoy in Roman culture. There, there were a lot of freedoms that women enjoyed. In fact, probably some freedoms that we didn't have in our country for a long time. Women had, in many instances, the right to vote in the first century. And that's something that just has happened in the last hundred, last one century here in our country. Um, and so the, the laws in, in the Greek and Roman world had come a long way if you compare that to the laws in Assyria and Babylonia, even Egypt. Women could often vote, they could own property, they did have a voice. How, however, in these home, these, these house codes, in the home, the husband was king, and his word was the law. He was naturally considered to be superior to his subjects, and the wife's position was to submit because their culture believed that it was within woman's nature to be ruled. That's how they thought. That's how the philosophers talked about it. And in the New Testament, the apostles still point to God's created order in the family. But, but the submission that we see in these passages is in this context of a relationship where each is called to serve the other. Let me just give you a couple brief examples of some of the writings we find, and then we need to move on. For example, Plutarch wrote in one of his household codes, quote, this is not me, okay? A virtuous woman, you ready for it? A virtuous woman ought to be most visible in her husband's company and to stay in the house and hide herself when he's away. Sound like a good plan? Aristotle, in his politics, wrote, All classes must be deemed to have their special attributes. As the poet says of women, silence is a woman's glory. But this is not equally the glory of man. That's Aristotle, the, the one we hold up in high regard. In fact, I saw some commentary on that passage. And, and it's interesting, the very same writers that come to Paul and Peter and say, how dare they say these things? How dare, dare they use the word submit? Speak of this very passage that Aristotle wrote. And, and what do they say? You have to understand the context as he's writing these things. And, and so it's true, we need to understand the context. But understand that in the context of the New Testament writers, women were considered inferior and their place was to be silenced and to stay in the home. The, woman, the husband had the right to divorce his wife if he felt she talked to the wrong person. There were no consequences. The, the long and the short of it is that women had many freedoms, but if the husband was not pleased, he could divorce his wife for the pettiest of offenses. And another important element that I think is very important as we look at, as we look at 1 Peter, was, uh, was that a woman was expected to adopt her own her husband's religion. When you look at these, home co- these, these house codes, it was the woman's responsibility to take the religion of her father and to put it aside, and whatever her husband's religion was, she was to join that. She had no independence in this matter. And so the very idea that Peter teaches that a woman might actually win her husband to Christ, that's revolutionary. That was unthought of in their day. Men didn't adopt their wives' religions. It just wasn't done. And that leads us to the third important part of our context today. We need to be careful that we do not separate this command here from the bigger picture of what's happening in 1 Corinthians. Uh, the people that Peter was writing to, uh, remember what their context was? Were, were, they, were they in a great situation in life, thriving? doing well financially no they, they were suffering this is a group of people that were were suffering they were exiles living in a hostile world nero was the emperor when first peter was written and soon after peter wrote these very words honor the emperor this crazy man was going to burn down an entire section of rome and then pin it on the christians and he would have them killed for their faith just because he needed a fall guy for the for the fire Some of the slaves that Peter wrote to had masters who treated them harshly. And many of the wives that received this command 
were married to some of the very people that were active in slandering Christians. And so what are Christians to do? Men, women, slaves, people in under governments, wives in households where their husbands are not believers. What are we to do when the world hates us and they hate the Savior that we love and serve? And what Peter points us to is this incredible opportunity an incredible opportunity that we have as followers of Jesus Christ to display God's grace through our submission to the very ones who cast their animosity towards us. Peter's whole objective, as we go through these two chapters, is, is he, remember the picture? He says, we're, we're temple. You are living stones. You're not just stones that are built like a building and sheetrock that's put up on walls. You're not stones that build into a grand cathedral. You are living stones. You are part of the household of God. And not only are you the stones that are the household of God, but you are the priests within it. And it is your responsibility to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a privilege, right? God has given that to you, right? Somebody? Amen. God has called you to proclaim his excellencies. Our conduct among the Gentiles is what will cause them. One of the main ways that we proclaim his excellencies is through our good deeds. It is our conduct that will cause them to glorify God on the day that he saves them from their sin because they will see your good deeds and, and they'll say, I need that. And so switching from this context of governing officials and slaves, he moves to this context of, of, of wives, particularly wives who, who are living in households where their husbands weren't believers. And he says, look, in this context of proclaiming the excellencies of our God, one of the greatest opportunities that you have is to be a light to your husband who needs Jesus Christ. And submitting to him means putting aside your own rights and your own freedoms and, and willingly putting yourself under the leader of your home. In a way that he goes, I need that. I want what you have. And to understand that when God commands wives to submit to their husbands, not all of these husbands were believers, but it was their desire to proclaim God's excellencies that would lead these godly women to a changed perspective of how their about their husbands. And it would lead them to a gentle and quiet spirit that would speak louder than any arguments that they could muster with words. I like how Roger Raymer commented on this verse in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. He says, A wife is to accept her place in the family under the leadership of her husband, whom God has placed as the head in the home. Wives are to be submissive even if their husbands are unbelievers. So those men might be saved by the behavior of their wives. The powerful purity of a godly woman's life can soften even the stoniest male heart without a word. Now notice the difference between the culture of that day and what God tells us here. Let's turn to verses 3 through 6. Like in today's culture, um, so much of what defines who a woman is is defined by what she looks like. I, is that is that accurate? I, I'm not saying that's that's 100 percent the way it is. You know, we talk about you're beautiful on the inside and out, and we kind of throw that out there uh, online and social media. But uh, but by and large, our society defines a woman's worth in so many ways by how she looks, how she dresses, the kind of jewelry she wears. Uh, we've made so much progress in this area uh, over the centuries. And I'm thankful for that. But but oftentimes, um, women are objectified. And they're diminished uh, in their value by, um, by a false sense of what's beautiful. Outward adornment symmetry were the focus of beauty in, in Greek and Roman culture. Often like it is now. And that, and according to Aristotle, um, what it was also beautiful was her silence. That was part of the beauty that was a woman according to Aristotle. But Peter, what he does is he elevates women and he changes our perspective about who women are and who they are in the kingdom of God. Look at verse 3. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is in God's sight and is very precious. Now, P 
Peter is not forbidding women from wearing nice clothes and dressing up, okay? That, that's not the point of this passage, and I've heard that before. I've heard people say, well, see what Peter says? No jewelry. Never braid your hair. No brushes. No perfume. Uh, that's not the point of the passage, because I think we have a lot of examples throughout the Scripture where we see women looking, looking nice. Uh, Sarah, remember Sarah, Abraham's wife? When she went down to Egypt in her 60s and 70s, she was turning heads. All right, so there's lots of examples of beautiful women who look beautiful on the outside as well as the kind of character that Peter's talking about here. But Peter's point is that women are much more than these outward adornments. If your beauty is indeed skin deep, then your unbelieving husband will have nothing that attracts him to your God. If you're just beautiful in, in how you dress and the, the perfume you, you wear and, and the way that you that you look on the outside, then, then that's, that's not going to win him to Christ. Peter expresses to these believers that women are, are not limited by the jewelry that they wear and whether their mouths are silent at, at the right time, as the philosophers of the day would say. It is instead the beauty of her heart and the beauty of her quiet spirit that will win over her husband so that words and bracelets aren't even needed. And then in verse 5, he points out to us an example, and he, and he pulls it from Genesis. It's an interesting passage. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, I think part of the issue that we face is we hear a word like submission, and there's lots of connotations that we bring to that in our culture. That, that means absolute obedience. That means absolute no, 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 no thought of, of what's being commanded. Uh, we looked last week how submission includes this idea of, uh, of asking ourselves the questions of, does this cause me to disobey God? Well, then I, I can't obey that. And so submission includes a lot of those ideas and those, those thoughts that we have to ask ourselves. Um, it, it doesn't mean that a person doesn't have a voice or they can't share their opinion about anything. There's so many different ideas about submission that just aren't here in the text. But we've infused that into our ideas within our culture about what we think that means. Now, I do want you to think with me for a moment about Sarah and Abraham and what this looks like in their context. Um, were these perfect people? I mean, they're in the Bible. They must be, right? No. By no means. And was Abraham an ideal husband? The men don't answer that. Ladies, was Abraham an ideal husband? <laughs> Definitely not. I mean, this guy made some blunders, didn't he? Um, like encouraging a lie that his wife was his sister. and I mean, she was his half-sister. That was acceptable in their culture. But, but then they went over to a different country, and what does he do? Say, you're not my wife because you're so beautiful, and uh, I want people to kill me. And the result was Sarah gets taken into the harem of Pharaoh. Yikes. Good job, Abraham. God saved her out of that mess. But understand that Abraham was, Abraham was not a perfect husband. And, and Sarah had a lot of opportunities to look at Abraham's behavior and went, yeah, you really botched that one, didn't you, buddy? However, I, I don't believe that their trip to Egypt is what this passage is talking about in particular. There's one passage. Now, did you catch what, the, what First Peter said about her? What did Sarah call him? Master, Lord, all right? Not, not Lord in the sense that we talk Lord, the Lord God, but Lord, Master. Um, a lot of people read that and go, what? Seriously? You make a point of that? You know, do I have to do that? You know, welcome to that. Welcome home, Lord. Is that what this passage is saying? Uh-uh. Okay, so don't, don't make this mean something that it doesn't. There's one place in the text of Genesis where we read that Sarah calls Abraham Lord. It's not when they went down to Egypt. Really interestingly, it's, um, it's in Genesis chapter 18. And in Genesis chapter 18, it's a passage where Abraham uh, it receives a visit from some angels. One of them is probably a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so these three messengers, angelic beings, come and they visit Abraham. And, and Abraham's playing a good host and he's visiting with these men and Sarah is inside, and she prepares a meal on the other side of the tent. And she's listening into the conversation on the other side of the door. 
Now, Abraham is 99 years old, and she is 89. And she's been following this old man around the Middle East, trusting that God is going to keep his promise for decades. And then the angel tells Abraham that in one year's time, Sarah is going to have a son, 89 years old and 99. And so what does Sarah do? What's that? She laughs. Or was it an audible laugh that everybody heard outside? She laughs to herself. She laughs to herself. This is 1812. says, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? I want you to notice what she doesn't do. Now, Now, get this. God, this angel, is speaking about her 99-year-old husband. She could have easily made the joke about him, right? You know, she turned it inward and said, me? But she could have said, ha, you seen this guy? But instead, in the privacy behind the tent door, in the privacy within her own heart, Sarah submitted to her husband by even honoring him when she spoke to herself. She says, my Lord is old, and she marveled that this thing could happen. But in no way does she mock him, disrespect the old man, even when she was laughing at God's promise. She honored her husband, even in the very thoughts of her heart. What Peter's doing is he shows how this kind of inward beauty that's patterned by Sarah is the kind of beauty that will proclaim the excellencies of our God. It's this kind of inward beauty that starts with the very thoughts that you have about your husband, the very way that you approach him and think about him. And, and, and if, if you respect him on the outside, but inside you're going, what an idiot. Sarah's example for, for us shows us that, that this inward beauty starts with the very thoughts that she had regarding her husband and the way she had trained her own mind, as, as we all are called to do. You see, Peter never commands women to be seen and not heard. Okay, the, 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 the ideas of women being silent and, and staying behind closed doors and only being seen when they're with their husbands, that, that's not what Peter says. However, what Peter does show us is it's this kind of beauty on the inside that's more than just the beauty on the outside. This inward beauty is what attracts a husband to their Savior without them even having to say a word. But finally, all, all of this was a completely different way of viewing women. Again, not only does Peter speak of women winning their husbands over to the faith, again, that was unheard of, but he, he cuts through the lie that a woman can only be beautiful if she adorns herself with the external and she stays silent. That was the lie of their culture that was not practiced 100%, but, but it was so popular and so promulgated throughout their culture. He cuts through that lie, and he shows us that there is so much more to the women in our lives than, than what our culture cuts them down to be. A woman is so much more than what our world objectifies about them. We need to understand that our God considers them and their sanctification to be something of precious value. What would happen? I ask you this question, men. Are you hearing me? What would happen in the home if all of us men took on God's perspective about our wives? If we took to heart the things that are said here about our wives and what God says about our wives, if we changed our perspective and saw our wives the same way, how would it change our marriages if we held precious the things that God treasures. Now, Peter's not done shaking things up, okay? We still have verse 7. The ancient household rules usually address the head of the family as well, just like Peter's going to, and it gave him absolute authority in the home. Aristotle, Plato, Plutarch, all these guys. They were, they were the rule of tyrants. They had absolute authority. And I want you to see what Peter does and, and see how he doesn't take that approach at all. 
He shakes up their world. Verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I know there's some words in there that, again, our culture goes, Ah, what do you mean women are weaker? And, and you know, we, we can go into all, we're not, going to go, we're not going to go into all that, but in this passage, it continues to remind us that we cannot forget what is most important overall here. You see, unlike other household codes, God commands us as husbands to treat our wives with respect, to live with them in an understanding way. And our culture reads this and goes, well, what do you mean in an understanding way? Are you saying that women are inferior and we've just got to kind of put up with them? What do you mean they're the weaker vessel? Are you saying they're broken and they're fragile? Well, let's take a look at this thing. The, the phrase that, that Peter uses, it, it literally says, when he, when he says live with them in an understanding way, it literally says live with your wives according to knowledge. And so be considerate. Men, again, are you hearing me? Be considerate. Know their needs, not only for a roof over their heads and food on the table, but know your wife. Live in a way that you know her spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. Know her needs. Live your, with your wife in a way that you're living according to knowledge. Don't just rule the home. Don't just be the provider. Be a husband who loves your wife. And it's in the same way that, that wives will win over their husbands by their behavior, men will win over their wives, their unbelieving wives, by their behavior as well. In fact, he makes an analogy here to a weaker vessel. And again, I've heard a lot of criticism about this. This phrase, how dare people call women weaker? And, and there's a lot of, there's, a, there's actually a lot of debate over what this passage means by this phrase. Uh, people have looked at it and go, okay, what, what does the weaker vessel actually mean? It, it's possible, let me just share a couple of possibilities. It's possible that he's just reminding, men and, reminding us that men and women are made differently. And, and we are, right? We're not the same. Um, God created us with unique strengths and unique weaknesses. And, uh, and we are different. It's possible that he's also reminding men that in society, particularly in the first century, but, but also today, women were more vulnerable. They just were. They didn't have the rights that men had, especially in the first century. And, and if a woman went walking out at night, it wasn't the same as if a man went walking down the street at night. Um, there's vulnerabilities in the way that women are treated, and, and, and that pervades society. And, and Peter and Paul and, and, and God want us to understand that, that we need to understand that. And men need to live with our wives in a way that we understand some of the struggles that they face in society. However, while, while these might be partially true, I'm of the opinion that, that all of this is packaged up in this phrase, but with a beautiful twist. You, you see, if, if you were to compare me to a vessel, a container, what, what would I be? As a man of the family, I suppose I'd be like a big, dirty water jar. It's ugly. There's a lot of divots and scratches and chips, but every day it gets carried down to the watering hole. It gets planked and plunked and water's thrown into it. It gets filled up and, and carried back to the house over the back of a camel. It may be the stronger vessel, but I'm not going to be the one that's displayed on the dining room table, am I? So what's the weaker vessel that Peter refers to? And, and I don't think it, that he's, it's, it's that he's focusing on calling women fragile and insecure. I don't think that's the, the main idea here. The women in my life, actually, if, if I can speak to this, often have much more inner strength and character than I do. And I, I admire them and the example that they are to me. However, God has made them in a beautiful way, not just by the outward adornment, there may be different aspects of how God has made women that, that you could point to that are more delicate and require a more elegant approach uh, than you would if you were out digging a, a ditch with the guys and then going fishing afterwards. 
the way you talk is different, right, guys? It better be. Um, but, but it's this weaker vessel, and I think here's what Peter may be getting at. It's this weaker vessel that will be displayed for everyone to see. It's this alabaster jar that carries not water from a well, but ointment for special occasions. It's not the sturdy water jar that gets honored and put on display, but it's the weaker vessel that's elegant and beautiful and has so much else happening with it that displays God's glory in a unique way that men just can't, not in the same way. We're unique, and we display God's glory in different ways in our lives, in our different roles. And, and you see, that's Peter's point. Men, love your wives. Not only by knowing her, but by honoring her. And here's the kicker. Peter elevates women once again, and he points us to a truth that no Greek, no Roman, no American culture would ever come up with. He calls our wives heirs. And he raises them to a level of equality that was unheard of in the first century. He doesn't say that we're the same. He doesn't say that we're made the same and that we're equal in every respect. He recognizes roles within the home and roles within the church that are unique for men and women. But no matter what our physical and emotional differences are, and no matter what our roles are that are different, spiritually we are on equal footing. And our wives are fellow heirs with us of God's kingdom. And we are all heirs to the gift of eternal life. And in the same way that wives are called to love their husbands more than their own liberty, to demonstrate the interchange that God has brought about so that he might be one to Christ, in the same way, husbands are called to love and honor their wives and to live respectfully with them so that, so that we are encouraging them towards growth in Christ. The command here is to be followed. I want you to understand this. This command is to be followed whether or not our spouse acts lovely. None of these commands regarding submission or respect or honor depend on how nice the other person is being. That's the challenge, isn't it? Because it's easy to submit to one another if the other person's acting perfectly. Maybe not easy, but it's more doable. God never says to honor the emperor unless he burns Rome down. God never says to obey your master unless he's a moron. Never does he tell wives to submit to their husbands unless he lies about being married to you in the lands of, and you end up in an Egyptian harem. I hope that never happens for any of you. And never does he tell you to honor your wife unless she's unlovable. This perspective of this passage is never on what my rights are. There are never conditions for obeying our God's commands and the priority for all of us as we are strangers in this world and sometimes strangers in your own home is that we would prioritize the proclamation of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. My priority is to long for the salvation of my president, to pray for the redemption of my assistant manager who has a bad temper, to long for the salvation of my unbelieving husband, and to cherish the sanctification of my wife who doesn't love me in return. And so with these priorities, live in a manner that puts God's glory on display. And they will have no choice but to notice God's light shining in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we again, we thank you for passages like this. And this is a difficult one, Lord. We, we live in a culture that, that reads this passage differently than it was intended in the first place. And then you add to that our sinful nature and our propensity to rebel and our propensity to want it our way and our propensity to love ourselves more than anyone else. And we come to a passage like First Peter 3, and whether we're men or women, we, we bucket this, Lord. I, I pray that you would teach us to submit ourselves to you, to submit ourselves to one another, and that we would learn to see your word as a blessing 
and it's an incredible portrait of how beautiful life is and how beautiful people are, men and women, and, and how you've created us uniquely. You've given to us roles in our homes and roles in society that oftentimes are very unique. And there's a beauty in that. But Lord, in the midst of all that, I pray that you give us hearts of compassion for the people that are around us, compassion for the very people that persecute us, compassion for the very people that make life difficult sometimes. Father, I pray for my friends here today because I know some of them are going home today to family members that don't know you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fill them with compassion and I pray that their good deeds would be a light in their home and in their workplace in their neighborhoods. And might your glory be seen as we go out from here.